0: And there's our new intro music. (laughs) Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, in addition to our new intro music by More Giraffes, it's called Dinosaur. I think we talked about this song a while ago, didn't we? Briefly, yeah. Yeah, but we've been working out the details on using that song for a while. (laughs) But now we have it. And so the biggest request probably in the other field of this year as well as last year's survey and in
1: some random reviews
0: (laughs) yes is hopefully solved if people like this new intro music i really like it so hopefully other people do too but anyway we also have dinosaur of the day tarkia this week and a bunch of dinosaur news including a new dinosaur which was technically from last year we mentioned it in the last episode we recorded last year before the best of but we'll finally get to it. wrap up the 2018 dinosaurs. And we have an interview with a Pastime Podcast, so a ton of stuff this episode. So in addition to our new intro music, we're gonna make some other changes this year. Thanks to all of you who responded to our survey. We got about 50 responses and it was really helpful. So we didn't want to really like push it out there and put it on like Instagram and all over the place trying to get as many people to answer as possible because we really just wanted our listeners who listen to it (laughs) to have the most input on what changes because you're the people who are affected by any changes. But anyway, the results are a lot of people, like I said, wanted us to change the intro and outro music, which we have already done. We were working on it throughout December. So yeah, we're just putting it into effect now. We created a new $4 level to replace the $1 and $2 levels. And really, that's because at $1, we only get about half of the money because... There's a lot of credit card fees that are like 30 or 40 cents. And then on top of that, Patreon takes a cut. So you get, we get very little money at these lower levels.
1: Right, well, the $1 and $2 level.
0: Yeah. So actually, Patreon basically tells people, like, you probably shouldn't have these really low levels because you end up losing so much money in fees that it's not really worth it. So we're replacing it with a $4 level. And I know for some people, that might be too much money. So everybody who's at the $1 and $2 level get grandfathered in and everything will just stay the same. And for future Patreon supporters, potential supporters, if $4 is too much, you can still do a custom amount in Patreon and do $1 or $2 or whatever amount you're looking for, just in case you can't afford the $4. But along with the $4 tier, we're also going to release a new Discord server because a lot of people said that they really wanted to have a Discord server amongst the options that we posted. I think like two thirds of people said they really wanted it. Yes. And And, some
1: people really wanted it.
0: Yeah. So they put in like custom things like, yes, do this. (laughs) This is a good idea. (laughs) So yeah. Thank you to everyone for your responses because now we know that that's what people want the most. Mm -hmm. And so we can do that first. Outside of Patreon, we're probably going to actually start live streaming games on YouTube, hopefully sometime soon, because that's something we can do easily. And a lot of people said they were interested in it.
1: Plus, there's a lot of games we like.
0: Yeah, there are. So it's like an easy thing to kind of fit into our schedule (laughs) because we can just play games and talk about them.
1: Yeah. So thanks so much for taking our survey. And thank you for being a listener.
0: And speaking of patrons that we're thankful to, we have this week's shout outs. And this week we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, and Aiden James. And Aiden just joined. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, again, thank you so much. You all are amazing and really help us keep motivated, keep doing this. And it's really great to have this community, especially going into a new year.
0: And now jumping into our news. Thank you to Steve for sharing this one with us. There was an article published in Pure J by Cristiano Sasso and others. And it's all about a new dinosaur found in Italy that we've talked about inadvertently a few times already.
1: <laughs> oh yeah it's made so many headlines.
0: There was a lot in this paper. I couldn't read the entire text of it. Sometimes these papers are really short they're just like three or four pages and sometimes they're like a hundred pages. This was definitely on the more like hundred page sort of scale of things because they covered so many different topics with this one new discovery. So first of all what is the dinosaur? It's called Sultriovinator zanellai. And Saltrio Venator is after the area Saltrio where it was found, plus Venator, which is Latin for hunter, so it's like the hunter from Saltrio. And Zanellai I is after Angelo Zanella, who found the fossil. So it's kind of like a typical way to name it, you know, you want to thank the person for their contribution. A lot of the articles that talked about this described it as important because it's so large and old. So there were a lot of titles like the oldest large-sized predator dinosaur.
1: Right. It was a little misleading.
0: Kind of, but I mean, it's they're on the right track. So basically, the way the authors put it is it's, quote, the largest and most robust theropod from the early Jurassic, predating the occurrence in theropods of a body mass approaching 1,000 kilograms by over 25 million years, end quote, which is a little bit more of a precise way to talk about it. And I think when they say that it's predating it by over 25 million years, they're probably talking about Eoabellosaurus, because that's about 25 million years later and weighed about 1,000 kilograms. But there were other ones starting to pop up around the same time, too. Allosaurus was a little bit later. There was a lot of stuff in the Morrison, which is, you know, like 150 million years. This guy was 198 million years ago, so it's like 50 million years before a lot of the ones that we know about. But... It's a ceratosaurus, so it's in that same group with all the abelosaurs and ceratosaurus and some of the other big guys. Not T-Rex, but, (laughs) you know, some of these other early Jurassic kind of big dinosaurs. Based on the, like, full text of the article buried in there, they had an estimated weight of between 1,270 and 1,620 kilograms, or 2,800 to 3,580 pounds, so... That's even more than that 1,000-kilogram mark that they were talking about. And it was about 7 meters or 23 feet long. So Dilophosaurus and Crylophosaurus were both around at the same time as Saltriovenator, But even though they were about the same length, they're estimated to only be about half the weight of Oh, So I think that's kind of like... The titles where they're saying it's the oldest large-sized predator dinosaur is kind of a weird way to put it because cryolophosaurs and dilophosaurs are both known from earlier, like very late Triassic, and they were the same length, and I would consider them large size. You know, they're over 20 feet long, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but really they weighed half as much. So if you're doing your definition of a large theropod or a large carnivore as a 1,000 kilograms, you know, like a metric tonne, then, you know, this really is the first one. So
1: Also, if there was something to scavenge and the three of them showed up, Seltriovinator would probably win.
0: Yeah, that's true. You might be able to scare off the other ones, mm-hmm. assuming that the other ones weren't in like groups or something. <laughs> Unfortunately, the specimen that they found is very fragmentary and disarticulated. <laughs> so it's like typical of a lot of European dinosaur fossils. You know, in China, you get these ones that are like perfect. They're like fully articulated. You've got almost every bone. In the US, we tend to get a pretty good chunk of the dinosaur south america you get a little bit less and then in europe it's usually just like a few bits and pieces and that's because europe was predominantly underwater which was the case for this one so it's just whatever made it out to sea and survived all the way till making it to the bottom of the ocean and that happened to get buried eventually so it's been out in the elements for a really long time by the time it fossilized so when all was said and done they only found small pieces of different bones But they were from all over the body, which was a little bit helpful. And the reason that this paper covered so much ground, because it included bones from the feet, hands, ribs, arms, and even some tiny pieces of the skull. So they could identify a lot of characteristics about it that helped them place it into Ceratosauria and even specifically within that family tree, as well as a lot of interesting comments about what its hands were like. And since the early Jurassic isn't a very well-known period of time, it's really helpful to kind of fill in gaps about how things were evolving. Really weirdly though, there were no vertebrae or Gastralia found at all. And there's almost always, there's so many vertebrae in a dinosaur with the tail and the back and the neck there's usually like a hundred vertebrae in a dinosaur. It's super strange to not have any parts of any of them. Usually at least you get a little piece of something, but there was nothing. And then also gastralia, there's a lot of ribs found, but those belly rib gastralia were nowhere to be found. And they (laughs) they had a funny hypothesis. They said, basically the dinosaur might've gone out to sea doing that bloat and float thing Mm -hmm. where it died and then bacteria is building up. So it's, you know, puffed up like a balloon so it's floating across the surface of the ocean and then eventually the theory is they explode (laughs) and they say maybe when it exploded the gastralia just got blasted away so they weren't going to be nowhere around when it fossilized and then but the vertebrae is still a little bit confusing to me but essentially the idea is as it sank into the ocean things just got scattered around so since the vertebrae are lighter or maybe you know, got ripped off by something or who knows what, they ended up just going off their own way. I mentioned the hand a little bit. So they say that it has, quote, a fully functional hand well adapted for struggling and grasping, end quote. And I think when they say it's well adapted for struggling, (laughs) they mean for grasping struggling things and not that like the hand helps them struggle, which is what the sentence says. But
1: oh, yeah, I see (laughs) what you mean.
0: Yeah just like a weird way to word it but it's important because people have been wondering for a long time kind of what kind of hands these early ceratosaurs might have had and this kind of helps fill in that gap it was found in the italian alps north of milan and near the swiss border which is it's always just crazy to me so this is like now on top of a mountain basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) but back in the mesozoic it was underwater And their best guess is that it's a close relative to Szechuanosaurus, which is another early ceratosaur, another kind of typical body plan, like a tetanurin sort of thing. You've got the tail sticking out behind it, big strong legs, big three-toed feet, relatively big arms in this case. Usually you think of them as being smaller, like in some of the later carnivores. And then you've got the big head with the sharp serrated teeth for eating meat and the probably binocular vision they didn't find really any part of the skull that would be useful for figuring out its senses they i think only found a tooth and then a couple little pieces of the jaw basically Hmm. maybe some of the palate so not a lot of information about the skull another really interesting piece of this paper like another chapter in the paper basically was about the taphonomy and again the taphonomy is what happened to the dinosaur before it was fully fossilized and they say that it quote shows bone bioerosion by marine invertebrate, which is a first for dinosaurian remains, and suggest a complex history for the carcass before being deposited on a well-oxygenated and well-illuminated sea bottom, end quote.
1: Well-illuminated?
0: Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting little tidbit. So I guess it didn't have to sink that far if it's well-illuminated, because I think sunlight only makes it a couple hundred feet into the ocean. But they said it has 30 quote-unquote macro borings on it. And when you look at it, it looks kind of like pieces were scooped out with an ice cream scoop. Hmm. But this is solid bone at the time. So they believe that that was caused by three different animals, depending on the shape. They had like three totally different shapes of these macro borings. One of them looks like it was an animal gnawing on the edge of the bone.
1: It's probably a tasty bone.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, there was probably little traces of like cartilage or something on there. Another was from an invertebrate, likely an anchorage trace. And by that, I think they mean that it's like a barnacle. So it's kind of like anchoring onto it, but then it's filter feeding or doing something else. So it's just a trace of something that's sticking to it. But when it sticks to it, it has to basically, you know, carve out a little spot to grip onto. And then the third one was another invertebrate, which could have been a lot of different things. But my favorite was a bone eating worm. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a thing?
0: Yeah. So I guess in the ocean, there are all these things that eat bone, and some of them are worms. Hmm. It's kind of disturbing. but Or they clean it up? They do. Yeah. Pretty interesting. I've never really seen a dinosaur fossil look quite like this with all these different markings on it. And it's it might also be that they got such a good age on it because they estimate it's 198 million years old because it was in the marine sediment, because a lot of these animals that live in the ocean evolve really rapidly and we have a really good record of what age specifically all these marine things were around so if something fossilizes with them you can say like oh that's that specific type of brachiopod and therefore we know it's from sometimes even as specific as like a hundred thousand plus or minus years so it can be really helpful even though it also kind of destroys the fossil <laughs> like in this case trade-off yeah like i said there was a lot of discussion about the hands And specifically the question of how two fingers kind of went missing in dinosaurs, because we all know theropods basically ended with three fingers. Think of things like Allosaurus and modern birds, for example, all have three fingers.
1: Well, but Tyrannosaurus had two.
0: Yes, but that's like going from three to two. Most other things kept three for a long time. And we've kind of wondered, mostly because of the birds, since modern birds still have three, how they ended up with the exact arrangement that they have. I didn't realize that it's, it's still a little bit unclear. And this paper is kind of another piece in that puzzle, basically showing that these early large ceratosaurs still had big useful hands and arms, meaning that they shrank pretty quickly during the Jurassic. Because, for example, Limusaurus, which is less than 40 million years later, it's still right in the middle of the Jurassic, has these really puny forelimbs. It's, they're tiny. They're almost like Alvarosaur size. You know, it's like you barely see them on the body. Despite the fact that this is a small-sized dinosaur, it doesn't have that big of a skull. So it's not like a T-Rex where it has this huge skull and therefore it loses its arms to kind of counterbalance potentially. So there's like weird pressures happening that we really still don't understand because you've got an earlier one that's really big and has big arms. And then 40 million years later, you've got a relative that's much smaller and has essentially no useful arms. (laughs) So like, what is happening? We really don't know. But this is like another useful piece in the puzzle because we didn't have that one spot for ceratosaurs. And then finally, I think one of the more interesting hypotheses in the paper was Just the fact that this dinosaur existed, this big, robust, early Jurassic predator, might help to explain why sauropods started to get big in the early Jurassic.
1: As a defense mechanism?
0: Yeah, exactly. So before that, you had things like Dilophosaurus, which don't look like they could take down a sauropodomorph, really, because they're, they're just not big enough. They're pretty slender. They look like they're built for speed and kind of being quick and stuff like that, whereas... This guy is a little bit more of like a brute. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Might go after a little bit larger prey.
1: What would make this one so large, though?
0: I don't know. Yeah, maybe eating (laughs) prosauropods. But, I mean, it's still really hypothetical because it's still very beneficial to have space for big guts and to be able to reach up high to get different plants. But it could be some combination. This could be another element. Oh, you mean the
1: sauropods for the big big guts and reaching up high?
0: Exactly. But the fact that something else was trying to eat them might have been another factor in sort of the exact body plan that sauropods ended up having. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was quite a discovery from just like these really fragmentary remains had really interesting taphonomy on them, had a big puzzle piece for the way hands evolved in early dinosaurs, and then also potentially, you know, impacts into sauropods all from one like super fragmentary pile of bones that aren't even lined up in the right way. (laughs) And then we also have an ankylosaur paper, because we got to cover those when they come out. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) This one came out of the Whitmer Lab by Jason M. Bork and others, and published in PLOS One, which is great because that means it's open access, and you can go read it if you're interested. The previous one was in Pure J2, which is also open access. So if you want to go through and read everything that I didn't thoroughly explain, because if I just read that paper, it would probably take like three hours. (laughs) and uh, That's not the most exciting podcast.
1: No, not terribly compelling audio.
0: No. (laughs) But if you want to see all the pictures, too, that's the best thing about open access is you can go see what these dinosaurs looked like. But this new article is talking about the quote unquote convoluted nasal passages which are an enigmatic hallmark of ankylosauria.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> It's really interesting because for a long time, it's been thought that essentially there are these weird maze-like nasal passages into ankylosaurs, and they might have been used as a heat exchanger. And these researchers decided to use a fluid dynamics model to see how well that would actually work. So it's all nice to sort of look at modern analogs and kind of guess at what might be effective as a heat exchanger, but no one had actually tested to see if it would work, (laughs) which is always a good thing to do. So specifically they tested Panoplosaurus and Euoplocephalus, and Euoplocephalus is especially crazy in its nasal maze thing. If you think of an ankylosaur head, it's kind of like a, a triangle which is rounded in the front. It's got kind of a rounded snout, but at the back it's fairly triangular with the horns and everything. And then its eyes are pretty close to those triangular points. So it's got this big old snout in the front. And then on top of that, its nose <laughs> sort of on top is pretty bulbous. It's got <laughs> like a pretty like big bump on top of its snout. And that bump is just filled with this crazy winding maze hmm. of nasal passages. Yeah. Like I said, for a long time, it's like, okay, well maybe that's for transferring heat because if you just have a straight shot through there, it doesn't spend a lot of time in the head. It doesn't have a lot of contact with the surrounding, you know, head material (laughs) to transfer heat. So maybe that's why they had it. And on Euoplocephalus especially, Its head is pretty wide. It's like almost as wide as an ankylosaurus head. (laughs) Maybe not quite that wide, but it's a lot wider than a lot of other ankylosaurus. And so this maze takes up a ton of space and it zigs and zags all over the place throughout the front of its head. Panoplosaurus is a little more simple. It's got a much narrower head. And to me, it's got what look like a pair of French horns. So one for each (laughs) nostril, basically, with way fewer twists. And it kind of makes sense because it's got a narrower head. So there isn't as much space anyway. In the past, with dinosaurs of the day, we've made comments like the nasal passages may have been used to help cool their brains since their head had so much armor insulating their brain and things like that. And I was, as I was reading this, I was like, oh man, I really hope that it's not a complete opposite of that and like negates all these <laughs> dinosaurs that we've talked about. And fortunately, it, it essentially panned out. But there's an added element of efficiency to it. So having these nasal passages, in addition to helping cool the brain, also helps them recover heat and water vapor rather than just exhaling all of it. So if you think about it, when you breathe in, you actually do cool your brain, too, a little bit, and your head, because the air you're breathing in is hopefully colder than your brain, (laughs) which is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And then when it gets to your lungs, it's a little bit warmer, which makes things a little bit easier for your body too. And then when you breathe out, the opposite happens. So it's at your body temperature now. And then as it goes through your nose, your nose is actually fairly cool. If you've ever looked at a thermal camera, it's one of the cooler parts of the head. Your exhaling actually helps warm your nose a little bit. So it's kind of like it helps cool things you want to cool on the way in and it helps warm things you want to warm on the way out. So it's, that's a it's pretty doing a efficient lot. process. Yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, if it's going through a really twisted canal, when it's in your lungs, there's a lot of moisture. And if it goes through your nasal passages that are all windy, a little bit of that moisture might get caught. And then you don't have to resupply all that. You're not getting dehydrated as quickly, basically. And if you take that one step further too, in addition to not having to drink as much, if you're saving energy, not having to heat this air, you don't have to eat as much. So it actually saves calories, which is always a benefit because if you're an animal out in the wild, finding food is always a major priority. And if you don't have to find as much, that's a big benefit. And in fact, the authors say, quote, Panoplosaurus and Neoplocephalus would have required 833 and 1568 thermal calories, respectively, to warm a single breath of air by 20 degrees Celsius. Heat recovery during exhalation results in energy savings of 65% for Panoplosaurus and 84% for euloplacephalus. So that's a huge savings in terms of heating. And I should mention the calories that we usually talk about are kilocalories (laughs) versus thermal calories. So it's not 833 calories like that we eat per breath. It's like 0.8. If you do that math, but that's still, you know, like every time you're breathing, you do a lot of breathing. Yeah,
1: it's necessary.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. They also compared the nasal passages to modern animals, including this animal called the spiny tailed lizard, which have a kind of similar zigzag airway in the front of their snout. But their eyes are a lot farther forward, so there isn't quite as much space. And they found that ankylosaurs had a really similar efficiency to a lot of modern animals. So we also get, like I said, these same kind of benefits from the way we breathe. And in terms of why there was such a big difference between these two ankylosaurs, they hypothesized that euplocephalus may have needed more complex nasal passages because it might have spent more time grazing in the open saying, quote, this extensive time under a constant beating sun coupled with the heat production from vast quantities of fermenting vegetation in the <laughs> gut may have placed a higher heat load on the brain of Euoplocephalus as opposed to panoplosaurus. Interesting. End quote. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I never thought about like it's heating up because it's got this big like bioreactor. It's digesting, it's got, yeah. Yeah. So... It's important to keep the brain cool. And when they breathe in and they have this heat exchanger in their head, it really helps. One final random note, I think they said it in an interview with Smithsonian or something, one of the authors did, is that maybe these nasal passages might have also been used as like a resonating chamber, kind of like we talk about in Parasaurolophus with its huge crest Mm -hmm. and making vocalizations through it, that maybe ankylosaurus could make some really interesting sounds using these nasal passages as well.
1: That's a fun thought.
0: Yeah. So there could be other uses for it. This was just kind of a proof of concept that it would help to cool a brain if that's what they wanted to do.
1: I don't know that they're thinking about that or that they thought about that.
0: <laughs> that's true. None, I always kind of attribute a sort of intention to evolution, but this is all just happening naturally yeah. for sure.
1: And they just took advantage of it. Yep. By eating out in the open while fermenting the gut contents. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we even know that it ate out in the open more. They were just saying, like, maybe it had worse food, so it had to get out in the open to find more or something. So it's it's very speculative in terms of the differences between the two. But Got it. the fluid mechanics show that it would work.
1: Cool. One other news of the new year. The Guardian published an update on Rio's National Museum, and you may remember that one burned down in a fire last September. So, a team of 60 people from the museum have been working on rescuing the items from the ashes. So far, they found 1,500 items or so. The museum had about 20 million. Oh, boy. But that's something. And these include indigenous bowls, arrowheads, and an axe, as well as the Luzia, the 11,500-year-old skull. And there's hope that they're going to make a new museum with these items. By February, the building should be secure enough for real excavation work. Right now, the team's picking through ruins. There's no reopening date yet for the museum, but one spokesperson said that it would take three years. And there's plans to make the museum reach more Brazilians and garner more interest, basically to help them get more funding in the future to prevent things like this from happening. Yeah,
0: because that was a lot of people were talking about they couldn't get funding to upgrade their fire Mm -hmm. prevention systems. That they had been complaining about in their wiring or something like that.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like part of that was their visitor numbers had been going down.
0: Oh, that's too bad.
1: Some happier news. The Bayville dinosaur in Berkeley Township, New Jersey, is now fully restored and back. (laughs) I feel like this story comes up pretty
0: often for us. Because these dinosaurs... Is that the one that keeps getting hit by trucks?
1: Yeah. (laughs) And now it's back. They had a dedication ceremony in late December. The dinosaur was once called Dino, now it's called Bud to honor Charles Bud Magahan, who's the treasurer of the Berkeley Township Historical Society, and that society is the reason that Bud is now restored. Nice. Yeah. They moved the dinosaur further away, so he's less likely to get hit by cars and
0: trucks. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like on the side of a highway, right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he's been fully renovated and he's got new glass eyes.
0: Mm Oh, fancy, not just painted on eyes.
1: (laughs) I think he had fancy eyes before.
0: Cool. At
1: Some point, something, some part of him lit up. I don't remember the details. Oh, nice. Not anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The electronics were destroyed (laughs) by a... By a a truck. ...rampant semi... uh...
1: (laughs) We've also got an update on the dinosaurs in Drumheller. So over the summer, three of the about 30 dinosaur statues were damaged... And now the Drumheller Dino Arts Association has partnered with local artists to create replacements in the same style. The originally were built in the 1960s and based on a 1940s encyclopedia, which (laughs) makes sense when you look at them. Yeah. It fits very well. (laughs) So the statues, the new ones for the three replacement ones are about halfway done. They're going to go on display in the spring. One of them, Garrett, it's going to be an ankylosaurus. Hey. There's a sketch draft. Nice. Yeah. And community members can volunteer to paint the statues, it would cool. be really fun.
0: Yeah, that would be fun. Some of them had really interesting paint jobs, like there's one painted like Batman and stuff.
1: I think Batman was one of the ones that was destroyed. Oh,
0: you're right, it was.
1: No, so, we'll see. And last, the movie Aquaman is out. We haven't seen it yet, but apparently there's some dinosaurs in it. It's only for a few seconds, but there's some, quote, cute little beach dinosaurs that look like tiny T-Rex, according to Bustle. And they live at Earth's core. Hopefully that doesn't spoil the movie. I know nothing about the movie.
0: Me either. I wonder, tiny T-Rex. So, I don't know.
1: It sounded like, again, hopefully this isn't a spoiler, but I I don't know anything about it. Because they're at Earth's core, why not have random dinosaurs?
0: Well, I mean, Journey to the Center of the Earth and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and stuff did stuff like that, where Mm -hmm. there's like ancient stuff So I guess they're just copying that.
1: Yeah. But actual dinosaurs, Gary, you were worried when you saw the headline that they meant Mosasaur or Plesiosaur or Pterosaur.
0: There's those water dinosaurs in the movie. Yeah. You know, sharks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at
3: bp.com/slash investing in America.
0: And now we're gonna go on to our interview with the pastime podcast which is the second half of the crossover. They already aired the half that was on their podcast, so if you want to hear some of the stuff that we might allude to, then check out the Pastime Podcast.
3: I'm Adam Pritchard.
2: I'm
4: Matt Bortz. And I'm Catherine Early, and this is not Pastime.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, we're joined this week by the hosts of the podcast, Pastime, and they are also all paleontologists. Paleontologists... Not just one paleontologist, unless they like their forces combined into a (laughs) Voltron-like super podcaster.
3: It's been known to happen.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And we met them at SVP. We are actually sitting at the, what do they call that dinner?
3: The The banquet.
1: Yeah, the banquet. Yeah, Yeah,
0: the banquet dinner with some of them and then started talking about podcasts. I was like, oh, you have a podcast. We have a podcast. Let's podcast together. So here we are. Yeah. (laughs) So what inspired you guys to start your podcast?
3: That's all Matt.
2: <laughs> Take it away. Adam and I uh had really intense, nerdy conversations about how much we love fossils that started in grad school. And it got to a point where it's just we need I wanted to capture it from my own because like capturing what was in Adam's brain um <laughs> and carrying it around in my pocket was something I really wanted. <laughs> and um I've also always been interested in video and audio editing and listening to a lot of podcasts, and so then it became that's a way. To capture this thing. And I think it was also we were really interested in finding a way to do more active outreach. And there wasn't really a museum that we were connected to at Stony Brook University, which is where we were both grad students. And so the way that we could kind of uh, do outreach into into classrooms because we didn't have a museum to kind of share fossils from uh, was to kind of do it from a distance. And so we would use pastime as a way to introduce ourselves to classrooms and and have kind of teachers and students watch our short videos or listen to introductions. And then we would come in with like Skype tours of our labs and show fossils that we couldn't really bring a classroom of students in to see, but we could at least give them kind of the primer and then have a chance to interact with with paleontologists, even if it was just on Skype. And so those two kinds of pieces were what we did as as the beginning of pastime was using as a way to do Outreach and also to capture the conversations between us and then with all the paleontologists we got to interact with and, and try to share everything that we've been learning from each other and from other people who are coming to Sony Brook. Nice. Cool.
3: I kind of thought he was nuts at the beginning because <laughs> I just, I wasn't quite sure if there were people who were out there that were interested in listening to this kind of stuff. I was thoroughly and completely wrong, which I'm very <laughs> glad to report. We were really shocked yeah. that there weren't already like 150
2: paleontology podcasts. Was I? Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, there was only one. <laughs> like, <laughs> PaleoCast was, was the only other podcast really that had gotten going. And right around the time that we got rolling, I think Paleo After Dark got started too. But it's such a, a rich field that weaves through so many different branches of science that, like, that there aren't 150 of us yet is also strange. There's more. And that's really exciting how many different voices there are and how many different stories there are to tell, but, um, it's still kind of amazing that there aren't even, you know, five years ago as podcasts were really getting rolling and Serial was, was, you know, getting a lot of people hooked (laughs) on this stuff that there weren't more fossil centered paleontology podcasts going on. And so that was kind of like going into, it's like, maybe there's a reason for that. (laughs) Maybe no one will listen, but it ended up building nicely. And then there's this large community of people who do this now, which is really
4: exciting. And I got involved in the pastime world because Matt, after leaving Stony Brook, he and Adam had to part ways because they both got their PhDs, and it was really hard on both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Parting ways. Still is. PhD, whatever. <laughs> they survived. And Matt started a postdoc at Ohio University, which is where I'm currently finishing up my PhD. And so we we met, we chat a little while. He, I guess, got to know me and saw that I've been really involved in outreach kind of since high school. I was really lucky to be involved in a program at a museum growing up that let me do outreach with live animals. And that kind of just kept going on and on and hasn't stopped yet. (laughs) Um, And so once I got into paleontology, I got more into the paleo side of outreach. And uh, so Matt saw that I was involved in that and invited me to come to Pastime and While I listen to podcasts, I had never thought of being on one myself, let alone doing one. So kudos to them for thinking about starting one. It's been a great way to continue outreach, but also for me, one of the things I like about being in this field is getting to know about new research, but also the people behind that research. Working in this medium where you get to interview a lot of people and introduce their work to a totally new audience is really appealing to me.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
4: I should also say and we
2: that the other reason we needed Catherine is because neither Adam nor I are actual dinosaur experts. <laughs> we needed to add that to the toolkit to be uh to, to really cover what the people want to hear, as you guys know.
0: Wait, all paleontologists aren't just experts in dinosaurs?
4: What? <laughs> Some of them even study invertebrates. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> but we like those too. Yeah,
0: They're useful for dating dinosaurs Oh gosh
1: (laughs) (laughs) You kind of touched on this The fact that there are not 150 podcasts on paleontology Because there's so many topics to cover But pastime covers A pretty wide range of topics How do you decide what you're going to talk about each time?
3: Oh boy (laughs) I I see something cool In the, the literature When I check it in the morning When I check my RSS feeds and think, hey, this is cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really, in a way, it it really is that simple.
0: So is there anything else you want to share about your show before I switch over to asking you guys specific questions about your research?
3: I think
2: one thing as far as the founding of it was trying to get at the idea that our show is trying to appeal to maybe a younger audience than is necessarily listening to podcasts. The way that we try to kind of think of what we're doing is taking the dino kids who are getting kind of the books with lots of facts and bridging that into how to understand the actual science that goes into the discovery. So... How do you try to target something to someone who's like somewhere between like eight and 13, Mm -hmm. uh, help them understand how paleontology discoveries actually happen? Because there's a little bit of a gap in the kinds of uh, resources that are available. We have resources for little kids and then we have some stuff for that middle age. But then like if you actually want to get in and understand what makes it new and different, one way to do that, hopefully, is by going out and learning what some of these words mean and so defining terms and and how these discoveries happen is hopefully part of what pastime does
0: yeah yeah that's a really good point because there is a ton of stuff for maybe like eight and under where it's like every kid is super into dinosaurs and then there's a lot of stuff for adults with you know the real scientific research but yeah that in between phase there is a lot less for sure I think when I was around that age, I just struggled through reading these like really thick paleontologist authored books and like didn't understand half of it. You know, you have to have a dictionary on one side and the book on the other side. And then most of the words aren't even in the dictionary because they were like made up for that paper. And you're like, what is this?
1: But then every so often you rewatch Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah,
2: (laughs)
3: it's true too. Adam Richard with your JVP subscription at 14. I didn't. Well, yeah, but like I knew what any of it meant. (laughs) I remember I was I was really excited. Yeah, I, I got like my dad got me a JVP subscription when I was 14 years old. So that's like 2001. And I was just so flabbergasted by all the terminology and the pictures of fossils that I couldn't interpret at all <laughs> i remember being really excited when one issue had a life reconstruction of a, a pterosaur's head with its crest and everything and i was like oh i know what this is, <laughs> I what this is.
0: Yeah, yeah that's really cool so <laughs> i want to ask adam a specific question so you i believe i read that you did some work at ghost ranch is that correct
3: i quite a bit yes
0: did you find any dinosaurs while you were there? I'm not allowed to say. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, it's
3: fine. No, I actually, I I've, I've found a few dinosaurs. So the material that I work on from Ghost Ranch at the Hayden Quarry is is beautiful. It's this beautifully preserved, almost oily black bone with a blue sheen to it that you can, you can see all the fine textural features, muscle scars, that kind of stuff. Wow. But by and large it's disarticulated. So I've never found a dinosaur skeleton per se, but I found lots of isolated like limb bones and vertebrae and things like that from dinosaurs. And a lot of the close cousins of dinosaurs like psilosaurs or legurpetids. Mm-hmm. some of these weird dinosaur, what used to be thought of as dinosaur precursors, but now, as it turns out, we're basically cousins that live right alongside the earliest true dinosaurs.
0: Awesome. What makes the fossils that like black and shiny sort of color? I don't
3: know. <laughs> <laughs> Something to do with the preservational environment, but I don't know if like the, uh, the sort of geochemistry behind that has been worked out at this point.
0: Yeah, those are some of my favorite fossils though. Like the one of my favorites is Black Beauty at the Royal Tyrrell Museum Mm -hmm. that has that same kind of, like, black sheen to it. And it's so, I don't know, it's kind of awe-inspiring.
3: Yeah. No. It makes it... I gotta say, one thing about them, this is just me whining, you can totally cut this if you want to, (laughs) but... One thing that's frustrating about them is it makes them so hard to photograph. Oh, yeah. Because mm. photography with paleontology to make things for specimens, you, you want every fine detail to be captured in that photo at all the different sort of focal depths to make something that's useful to other paleontologists in an article. But if you've got bone that is so dark and shadowy and it kind of washes out that that kind of detail, so I kind of have to like floof it over with like dust to, <laughs> to get those textures to pop. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I never thought about that.
2: One of the reasons I think the um, micro-CT revolution kind of took off really in the early like Bridger Basin like mammal evolution stuff is because the fossils that are from like the Paleocene, early Eocene are also all black hmm. and trying to figure those was really hard. But if you can then scan it, render it in a software program that you can adjust the color, then your figures can really make the specimens pop. And I've always wondered how much the image was what convinced people to then also go ahead and commit to, to getting the internal structure of these things, too, because <laughs> at least see something on these black specimens. And then people are like, oh, yeah. And you can also look at how dental eruption sequences work. And you can look at brain endocasts. And look at all this other stuff we have now that we can also like look at the image and not squint and not just see a black hole.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. We interviewed somebody from the Idaho Virtualization Lab, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I think now. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the same thing with I don't remember which specimens they were, but they were also really dark and scanning them with structured light or something and how it like never worked right because it (laughs) wouldn't reflect properly. And so they had to do things to them, but you don't want to mess with them too much because it's like a holotype or something and you don't want to just like paint it white, which I think was the standard, like, because the structured light thing they were using wasn't originally intended for paleontology. It was for scanning something else. And that was like what the manual said. It's like, well, just paint it white and then it'll, you'll be able to scan it
4: fine.
0: Not going to paint this fossil. (laughs) Dust is a good idea though. I like that. So Adam, can you tell us what dinosaurs you think they were from or is that the big top secret part of it?
3: No, no, that's, that's, that's all out into the world. (laughs) So primarily the, the sighted, I work at Ghost Ranch. There are only two known true dinosaurs species one is does not have a name yet. It is a coelophysoid, so an animal closely related to the classic coelophysis bauri, the kind of prototypical Western North American Triassic dinosaur. Mm-hmm. It's a bit bigger. It's not known from many, many really well-understood remains. The other animal is unique to the Ghost Ranch area, as far as I know. It's called Tawahale. Mm. It was described originally in, I think, 2009 as a very early member of the theropod lineage, kind of bridging the gap between the very ancient members that had been associated with that lineage, the hererosaurs from South America, and then the kind of the coelophysis level of things within theropods. As of late, as I'm I'm guessing you've talked about on the show, the phylogeny, the, the the evolutionary trees of early dinosaurs are in a state of constant flux, Yeah, <laughs> I guess I would say. And as a consequence of that, well, the coelophysioids, they tend to stay over with the theropod side of things, so that's probably what that is. But Tawa has hopped around from being a theropod to being a really, being a psorischian before you get the theropod. Sauropodomorph split to being something to do with Ornithos solidia. So it's the size of a German shepherd. It has pointy, serrated teeth and kind of a long snaggle tooth snout.
4: Say that
0: <laughs> Very sealophysis like. Of that. Your,
4: um, yeah. If any of the I know Dino listeners do want to know more about uh, Ghost Ranch material and the ecosystem at the time, Adam did a more in-depth pastime episode a few episodes back, so maybe we can uh, link to that episode so people can find it. Oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. that'd be great.
0: Cool. Have you ever worked with hererasaurus as you mentioned them?
3: You know, it's it's funny. There's an animal from West North America, from petrified forest, called Chindisaurus, ghost lizard, which is a name I absolutely love. <laughs> and Chindisaurus has been described as a hererasaur. And I've I've seen the fossils of that in person. I've not really studied them in depth. But that's another dinosaur that sort of hops around the evolutionary yeah. tree of things. So no. I don't <laughs> think I've ever worked with a, a legit Hererosaur. I haven't actually seen collections in South America. It's one of the it's something I want to do at some point, but haven't had the chance yet.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. I think yeah. when you were mentioning things moving around, hererosaurs are always the one where it's like, where do we put right. these yeah. things? <laughs> I mean, They're it looks so like weird.
3: if we could make a statement about evolutionary history based solely on ecology, it's like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, they look like theropods. They got the theropod teeth and the theropod head and everything like that. But the reality is, with all the craziness that's been happening at the base of the dinosaur tree, we don't know. We don't know a lot about what the ecology of the like ancestral population of dinosaur actually looked like. Yeah. I mean, we can pretty sure it was on the carnivore side of things, but like how how much it looked like a theropod versus like a really early sauropodomorph like Eoraptor panphagia. It's up for grabs.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs> Wait, there's an animal called panphagia?
3: Yes, what yeah. is Cantasia? <laughs> uh it's an it's a sauropodomorph, it's it's cute. It it looks like Eoraptor, <laughs> but like with a stumpier with kind of a stumpier, <laughs> more low slung body, much more kind of sauropodomorph leafy, iguana ish teeth. And it's it heterodont. I think so, yeah. Huh. It's it's Ishu Golasto, so it's early latest Carnian, earliest Norian, so like two twenty five, something like that. Mm-hmm grand name it is <laughs> it is
0: it's
3: like it gets to be the omnivore
0: yeah
2: <laughs> it's like a bear should have been called Panphasia. but oh yeah well. that's true so so sorry i'm so yeah, sorry I'm, I'm now just kind of bummed that that's a preoccupied <laughs> <laughs> not that the sauropod didn't or pro sauropod didn't deserve it but oh, god come on.
0: this is he's gonna there, go off like there, this
3: there are raccoons <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they're called Procyon, and you can live with that.
0: Here we go with mammals.
3: <laughs> this this happens a lot between us. It's it's, it's okay. You can cut this. It's,
0: fine. it's Maybe, fine. I mean, Omniphagia might still be available if you want to go for something like that. Hang on, I'm going to write that down.
3: <laughs> uh, no, no, not for you, I got, Adam. I got, no, I got some things that could use that. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare of the back pocket.
0: <laughs> Since we just started talking about mammals a little bit Matt you work at like a lemur zoo in North Carolina right
4: <laughs> the coolest lemur zoo
0: yeah
2: well it's it's yeah so I, I work at the, the Duke Lemur Center which does have animals on exhibit but the animals is actually a research center more than anything else where the research that takes place here it's all non-invasive behavioral uh, research and kind of physiological research on the animals that is trying to understand basically how lemurs uh, make a living because they are the most endangered group of mammals that we know of. And this population of lemurs has been living in North Carolina for over 50 years now. It's the largest population of lemurs outside of Madagascar. And so the uh, folks who've been working in the lemur center, are they have questions about gut biota. So they go out and collect fecal samples from ringtail lemurs and from black and white ruffed lemurs and from Shafaks and all these this remarkable diversity of lemurs that we have to understand how and what they eat, what kinds of population sizes they like to live in, how much land they need, so that all of that can be translated into conservation goals, which are other conservationists who also work at the Lemur Center and in Madagascar to try to figure out how do we take what we're learning here in this very safe, protected population and apply that to the more threatened populations that are actually living in Madagascar. And my job here is um, as the curator of fossil primates, because we have to connect the dots between lemurs and humans. If we're studying lemurs and we're learning a little bit more about what it means to be a primate, uh, lemurs kind of broke off from the rest of the primate family tree pretty early on in the evolution of primates, and we're learning some really fascinating things about how lemurs work together. Um, they tend to be matrilineal, that is, they're kind of like female led uh, social populations. The mouse lemur turns out to have Alzheimer's. It, de- it develops plaques in its brain that look almost exactly like the plaques that humans develop. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so they end up being a really interesting group of animals to study. Like, only a certain percent of the population is affected. And they're animals that, that kind of live fast and die young. They're small. They're, they come by their name, honestly, as mouse lemurs. <laughs> <laughs> and that means that you can study the, the life cycle of these animals. You can actually look at what are they eating? How are they interacting with each other? And how does that influence who ends up getting Alzheimer's and who doesn't? And that can be used then as a model for understanding how it develops in humans. But of course, if we want to figure out how a lemur can tell us anything about what it means to be human, we have to travel through the primate evolutionary tree to connect those dots. And so the Division of Fossil Primates at the Lemur Center sets out to do that, where we have collections here, over 35,000 specimens, that chart kind of the major branches along the primate family tree. So we have big collections from Wyoming, where a lot of early primate evolution took place actually in North America, and in Asia, and in Europe. And that's kind of when lemurs broke off from the rest of the family tree. So we have these kind of early lemur-like primates in one collection. Uh, we have a big collection from Egypt, which is uh, about 36 to 28 million years old. And that's when the ancestors of monkeys and apes kind of cropped up. Hmm. And that takes place in Africa. So you get some primates that are the ancestors to us, basically, dispersed from the northern continents into Africa. and they radiate. And some of those animals that got in uh, end up going to Madagascar. And some go across the Atlantic Ocean to become the South American monkeys. And others stay put, and they diverge into old-world monkeys and apes. And then we have another collection that's from the Miocene. So that's a period about 19 million years ago when this stuff was deposited. And that's when apes are really starting to diversify. And then we have this really massive collection from Madagascar, where while all of this is going on in mainland Africa and in the rest of the world, lemurs have dispersed to madagascar and are basically become doing all of the things that primates are doing all the in the rest of the world only on one island so we have a sub fossil lemur collection the oldest fossils are only about twelve thousand years old and the youngest are only about 300 years old and that documents this huge diversity of all kinds of animals that used to live in madagascar a lot of them have gone extinct and it's mostly the big animals so we have Elephant bird fossils. We have giant lemur fossils. So there's uh, lemurs named things like hmm. uh, that is the size of a gorilla. Wow. Wow. We have things like Paleopropithecus, which is a relative of the fox, which is the the Zububufu lemur. Um, <laughs> only its relatives were they're basically sloths. They're called sloth lemurs. They kind of hang <laughs> underneath branches. They have super long claws. And uh, they lost their thumbs. And so they're kind of walking around underneath branches, as far as we can tell. And they're like the size of uh, German shepherds, which is like German shepherds hanging under branches. <laughs> um, there's monkey-like lemurs that have short faces and big brains and big crushing teeth that look very ape-like. It's just this crazy diversity of animals. And so all of that is part of the Duke Lemur Center fossil collection. And so now I'm the curator of that. <laughs> wow, that's nice. really cool.
4: Congrats. Yeah, can you I'd- tell he loves his job? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Can, can you tell I'm working on writing a grant about all of this <laughs> oh.
3: I really feel like I understand the broader impacts and the intellectual merit
0: of your collections use <laughs> <laughs> podcasts and tell people about what's going on hey <laughs> nice so when were the first lemurs do they overlap with dinosaurs at all I know nothing about lemurs
2: that is a great question <laughs> and one that is at the core of mammal evolution. When we look at molecular evidence, it seems like a lot of mammal groups like primates and the relatives of primates diverged from other groups of mammals during the end of the age of dinosaurs. The fossil record though, doesn't give us animals that look like primates until the Paleocene. So we're looking at a time period after the extinction of the dinosaurs up until like 55 million years ago. And that's when these early lemur-like relatives first appear in the fossil record. Hmm. So it's entirely possible that lemur-like primates or primates themselves originate earlier, and we're just not getting them in the fossil record. So the hunt is on <laughs> to try to figure out where that kind of these origins are. And so that that's, we don't know where bats come from. We don't know where a lot of cloved animals come from. Like the, the early relatives of a lot of major groups of mammals are very mysterious. And that's actually part of the reason why I study mammals is because looking at this modern radiation we can walk it back and try to build hypotheses about what we think the common ancestor of a hoved animal like a horse and a hoved animal like a deer would have looked like (laughs) and then how do you get whale into that picture yeah
0: (laughs) yeah the whale evolution is awesome (laughs) yeah so catherine i wanted to ask you you study bird brains is this correct
4: yes i do study bird brains
0: so my question, my main question is, are dinosaurs going to reinherit the Earth as they continue <laughs> to get more intelligent?
4: Well, let's see. We're upwards, I think, of 10,000 species of birds right now. So you could make the argument that they already have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think probably the uh, the biggest thing that's holding back, you know, avian dinosaurs and, for that matter, cephalopods like octopus from inheriting the earth is the whole like hands thing for birds you know hands are really useful if you're going to manipulate the environment around you and that you know cephalopods are kind of stuck in the water so they're they're real (laughs) smart but they're not gonna (laughs) not going to change the environment in the way that humans have but i think birds are doing pretty okay for themselves for the most part
0: yeah and i uh, there was one talk at svp too where it was showing how Like some of the birds are like getting rapidly more intelligent, like more intelligent, like just exploding. And they were saying that it's kind of mimicking the way that primates evolved in the diversification and then this like rapid intelligence increase. And then everybody, you know, you see movies like the birds and you're like, yeah, they're plotting (coughs) and like crows can like hold grudges and remember people.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm, They hold funerals apparently. Yeah. (laughs) The talk you're talking about is a very large collaborative project. And uh, my name is buried there in the author list, along with many other great people who work on bird brains. And the person who presented it, one of the lead authors, Dan Sepka, was actually my undergrad advisor. And he's kind of the reason that I got started on my interest in the evolution of bird brains. And regarding the project, he likes to to come up to us and make us say, crows are the hominids of the bird world
0: (laughs) yeah he did have a picture that was like that evolution of man except at the end it was like a crow with the like stick over its shoulder or whatever
4: (laughs) (laughs) yes i really enjoyed the the graphics he used in that talk and the animations to (laughs) demonstrate the evolutionary pathways
0: so what are you studying like where, where have you gone with this sort of related research
4: so my dissertation focuses on the brain endocasts of birds because mm. you can't get a brain, the true like 3D preserved down the cellular structure brain in the fossil record, at least for, for birds and for vertebrates, really. Sometimes you get lucky with invertebrates, not necessarily 3D preserved, but you can get more of a soft tissue preservation or at least the more clear impressions of the soft tissue. But for birds, all you've got is the space in which the brain sat, which fortunately in birds is actually pretty close to the shape of the actual brain. So people have established that by comparing the volume of the um, both the actual brain in modern day or extant species of birds and the space in which the brain sat. So that leaves us, if you basically virtually fill in the space in which the brain sat, Then you have something called an endocast. Mm -hmm. And you can look at the endocast and see the external shape of the brain. And a lot of times we like to look at those and say, like, oh, this structure on the endocast, which corresponds to this brain structure, is really reduced in this extinct bird. And because we know that brain structure is involved in a given behavior, that must mean that that behavior, you know, maybe they had uh, decreased behavioral capabilities for that particular function. Mm -hmm. But the problem with doing that is that we haven't actually established if there is a you know maybe quantifiable relationship between for example the overlying endocast structure and the underlying brain structure mm-hmm. and so that's what I'm seeking to figure out for my dissertation how faithful are endocasts to the brains and birds and by doing that we'll end up with hopefully pretty strong quantitative relationship between the endocast structure and the brain structure so that when you do have an extinct bird and you're lucky enough to have a three-dimensionally preserved skull because birds really like to get smushed in the fossil record, um, (laughs) you can look at the size just of the endocast structure and calculate what would have been the size of that related brain structure and then incorporate that into larger analyses of brain structure size in their modern day avian relatives to see if this bird, you know, the extinct bird with a reduced endocast structure is actually falling out as having a significantly smaller brain structure. And then potentially, if that's the case, talk about the functional and behavioral implications of that reduction.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's. I really like that kind of research that questions a major assumption that we've been making because you always see that where it's like, you know, there's this large it's larger in the part by the eyeball. So it probably had better vision. And then they have uh-huh. to write like a caveat, like, well, we're not really sure about that because we don't know. But, you know, hopefully yeah. that's true.
4: <laughs> and to be fair, that's an assumption that, that that I've made too. You know, without doing these tests, that's kind of the assumption that any of us have to make yeah. if mm-hmm. we want to say anything about brain evolution. But hopefully we'll be getting at some answers pretty soon. And by hopefully, I mean you know what? I need to stop saying, hopefully we will be getting an answer pretty <laughs> soon because I'm finishing my PhD, <laughs> uh, by May. So we will be getting answered. <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this week. And everybody who uh, listened to this and wants to check out your work, definitely check out the Pastime podcast because it is excellent and features these lovely people, Every time the episode comes up. <laughs> oh, my. Well, thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks again, Pastime Podcast. We had a lot of fun chatting and learning about stuff that's not strictly dinosaurs.
0: Yeah. And we did have to edit out some of the interview because. We had a really great time talking. I think we might have talked for three hours or so between the two podcasts. So we have an extended interview that will be on our Patreon feed, which has even more stuff that's not related to dinosaurs. But But is related to paleontology. It is. And it's fascinating. So I definitely recommend checking it out. But, you know, we can't put like an hour long interview in here. So (laughs) if you want a longer form one, head over to our Patreon.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Tarchia, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was an ankylosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia, and Tarchia had a broad, low body and short, strong legs. It walked on four legs, and its head was covered in armor. It also had osteoderms on the body and probably had a tail club. It had spikes on its back. And Tarchia lived in the desert. It was probably prey for Tarbosaurus. One Tarchia skull has been found with tooth marks from Tarbosaurus. Oh. Yeah, well, it happens. Poor guy. Tarbosaurus had to eat. Yeah, true. It was found in 1970, Tarkia was, by a Polish-Mongolian expedition. They found a skull. And described in 1977 by Teresa Marianska. The type species is Tarkia kielinae, and the name means brainy one. The genus name comes from the Mongolian word Tarki. It had a larger brain than other similar ankylosaurs. That's why it's named the brainy one.
0: I love that. <laughs> I think we already covered the less brainy one.
1: Probably. And the species name is in honor of Professor Zofia kielan Jarowska, who led the expedition that found the fossils. The holotype includes a skull roof, brain case, and parts of the rear of the skull. Three other specimens were referred to Tarkia and included tail vertebrae, including part of the tail club, and a scute and a right humerus. In 1977, Tatiana Tumanova named a second species, Tarkia gigantea, and that was actually originally Dioplosaurus gigantius, which was named in 1956 by Malev. In 1987, Tumanova found that Dioplosaurus and Tarkia were the same, which made Dioplosaurus gigantius a senior synonym to Tarkia kialanei. Most scientists agreed, and the two names were combined into Tarchia gigantea. Then Victoria Arbor found that Dioplosaurus giganteus was a nomum dubium, not distinguishable from other ankylosaurs from the same time in Mongolia, and revived Tarchia Chialinae, and she found that a specimen with a tail and club that was referred to Dioplosaurus giganteus was different from the Dioplosaurus holotype. She also found that the specimen Tumenova referred to be Tarkia in 1977, was actually Sycania, another ankylosaur from Mongolia, which was well-preserved and defined how Tarkia was illustrated and depicted and changed how we thought Tarkia looked. Arbor found that the holotype of Tarkia was similar to Minotaurosaurus, which was named in 2009 by Miles and Miles, and that Minotaurosaurus was a junior synonym of Tarkia. In 2016, Pankowski and Tumanova found that the 1977 specimen that was referred to Tarchia, that Arbor thought was Psyconia, had too many differences from Psyconia and was actually a new Tarchia species, Tarchia teresae. And they also found Minotaurosaurus to be its own genus. Estimates of the size of Tarchia have been based on Dioplosaurus giganteus. The holotype was one of the largest known in colosaurs. So estimates were of it being about 26 feet or 8 meters long. However, Tarchia chialinae and Minotosaurus holotypes are smaller. Gregory Paul estimated in 2010 that Tarchia was actually about 14.7 feet, or 4.5 meters long, and weighed 1.5 tons.
0: And our fun fact of the day is very short and sweet, and it's that the famous paleontologist Barnum Brown was named after P.T. Barnum.
1: The circus guy.
0: Yeah, I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're the only two Barnums I've ever heard of. That's
1: true. And I used to think they were related. (laughs) Yeah. So Not by blood, but in some way.
0: Yeah. In spirit.
1: Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Happy New Year. Thanks again for listening, for being our listeners, for responding to our survey. Again, we're making changes based on that. And if you want to join our amazing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again for listening. And until next time. Also, enjoy our new outro music by More Giraffes, the song called Dinosaur. <laughs>